it's always just been been miserable to be feeling this way and to have to pretend or have to pretend, but like to tell yourself you need to pretend. That's so much of a burden to place on yourself on top of already going to work with a mental illness. That was Max, a data scientist living with depression and anxiety, talking about what's at the heart of being a silent superhero, the struggle to show up at work like everything's fine while fighting a hidden internal battle. In today's episode of Silent Superheroes, Max talks about how an internship in France collecting data on the price of haircuts led him to be diagnosed with depression. We'll talk about his experience going on and off medications and what mental health professionals could be doing to set better expectations about side effects. We'll talk about the US healthcare system and how it can make treatment more complex. And we'll hear Max's plan for putting together an employee resource group at his work to provide support for others working with mental illness. Remember, Max and I are just two people talking about our personal experiences working and living with a mental illness. If you're thinking about changing your treatment plan, please consult with your care provider. My name's James Pratt. I'm the host of Silent Superheroes, and I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome to the Silent Superheroes podcast a series of frank conversations about mental health at work. Welcome to Silent Superheroes. I'm here with today's guest, Max. Max, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, this, is, uh, this is exciting. Let's start with getting to know you. Uh, who are you and what are we going to be talking about today? I'm Max. I am originally from Pennsylvania. I've moved around quite a bit since uh, growing up there. Um, currently, obviously settled here in Bellevue. I am a data scientist by profession for a company called Limeade, uh, which is all about work well-being and helping people not feel like I feel at work sometimes, I yeah. think. It seems an appropriate choice of career. For yeah, me. yeah. Yeah, there's there, there's a drive there. I mean, I've I've had struggles at, at work before, and it's always sort of been a passion is maybe too strong a word but to try to to want to want to help other people have a better experience it's great including myself so you mentioned uh work has been at times uh difficult for you and so i'm assuming that there's some kind of mental health things going on there why don't you talk to us about about what that is for the ones i know for sure about i was diagnosed with the depression and general anxiety uh probably back when i was 20 or so so that's, I mean, diagnosed when I was 20. I think maybe if anyone had like gotten a look at my journal when I was in high school or something like that, that probably maybe would have been an earlier one. Uh, but no, that's, a, I've, that's like the first time I saw a therapist and was on meds and stuff. Yeah, but th- 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 those are the main things. Uh, the other thing, this is sort of a bit of a mystery. I've had people on and off telling me that I do and don't have bipolar type 2. <laughs> yeah, for a while I was seeing a therapist and a psychiatrist who seemed to think that maybe I was. And then more recently, I saw a psychiatrist who said, no, I definitely don't. It's a bit complicated. Uh, I think I've listened to the episodes before, so I know that you know about manic and hypomanic symptoms and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. of course. You're a very personal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've had moments from like what I've read about it and from what I've talked to with therapists and stuff that I can that seem like hypomanic symptoms, but they don't last long at all. So I think that makes other professionals think that I, I don't have uh, have that because you know i think textbook dsm definition of bipolar 2 is like you know hypermanic symptoms for at least four days or something like that but usually longer it's interesting isn't it that 
the diagnosis of these conditions is is imprecise. I feel these symptoms, but they tend to last like a few hours at most. They feel very much like what I've read about it, but uh, don't maybe warrant some of the interventions that you get with bipolar. So the diagnoses aren't aren't perfect. I think one of my my most recent therapists said best that the diagnostic codes are really more for insurance billing purposes than they are for actually interesting. I think to a certain extent, it's useful to have like, I mean, labels are double-edged shorts, I guess, but it's good to know some, have some idea about like what you're working with and that other people are experiencing this sort of subset of symptoms. It's like a pointer, isn't it? It's like, here's the general direction in which you should head to manage this state of mind that, that you have. That's yeah. It's, it's all sort of, unclear especially when it comes to the medication i think that some non-mental health conditions people take medication and they know it does a specific thing and it's yeah. the right thing but with i think most medications for mental health like the, the mechanism by which they work is not really clear to anybody at this point so it sort of sometimes ends up feeling like like a chemistry experiment with your brain <laughs> yeah uh sorry I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here well, which i think it's a valid point i think that's what put some people off taking medication because it's not like, you know, maybe an antibiotic where you have an infection, you know, there's green goo coming from somewhere, right? You take the medication for seven days and the green goo stops. And so you can see a very tangible difference. And then with mental health medications, because it's your brain that's evaluating the state of your mental health and it's your brain that's, whose function is being tweaked, Mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to tell the difference. Yeah. And I think uh, it even comes with like professionals, uh, psychiatrists maybe, or others like having different tolerances for symptoms, I think, like like what, what they consider to be a baseline normal. I was seeing a psychiatrist who then like went full full-time inpatient. So I got transferred to a new person at the same clinic and he was all about loading me up with, mm. with meds. I actually stopped seeing him when he tried to prescribe me uh, Seroquel. I, I don't want to be totally sedated at, yeah. at work. And he was like, maybe you could use some sedation or something like that. So I think, I think with, with mental health, there's still some ambiguity of like what, like the appropriate extent to which like to treat something, like what, like when something is like a acceptable personality trait, maybe versus being, you know, pathological or something like yeah. that. I think for me, that balance is where those symptoms interfere with the functioning of your life if you've dealt with them for long enough then you can function in way in your day-to-day where most people won't be able to tell that something is wrong some people have very severe problems obviously i know i've I've been there but i've had severe symptoms and not been able to work or something like that but you know the the usual just sort of day-to-day running of things like you can have a bad day with mood or with anxiety or something like that and most people just won't know you mentioned earlier that you were, uh, you first received a diagnosis at 20, although looking back at your journals, you wonder <laughs> perhaps if there were some things going on before, which there mm-hmm. probably were. Talk to us about what led you to get diagnosed. Yeah. So when I finally got diagnosed, I, I was actually, I was, this was my junior year of college that I was studying abroad in Paris um, for a semester. It was a semester-long program. Half of it was like coursework. Half of it was an internship or something like that. Um, so the coursework, I was around people a lot. I was sort of forced to be around other people in the same program. But when I got to the internship, I spent a lot more time on my own. So I, was, I sort of got into this isolated feeling and withdrew from a lot of people. And at that point, 
started having really severe anxiety, like panic attacks when I would ride the metro to my internship and stuff. And yeah, depression spells, that kind of thing. So I actually ended up having to leave the program early. But so it was supposed to be a four month program. I left at like three, three and a half months or something like that. Which says something in a way because you were pretty close to finishing, right? You know, three yeah. and a half months into a four month mm-hmm. program. So things must have got pretty bad that you're like, you know what, these last two weeks or whatever, I'm just not doing it. It was, yeah, it, it, it did get really bad. I mean, I, I was lucky enough that for this internship, I had done most of the work. And there was like a written component of it and a presentation component. So like the only thing I ended up missing essentially was this presentation component. Like that, that wasn't worth it. No one, no one really looks at grades from study abroad anyway. So I wasn't super worried about it. <laughs> um, it's all, yeah. You know, I do remember having the conversation with the program director when I left and she said that it was, she was surprised that I had stayed that long. <laughs> this is one of those things where I, like maybe I didn't think, especially after I was done with the coursework and was more on my own, that it was obvious to other people. But clearly this woman had seen something, seen something in me where, yeah. Uh, yeah, I defied expectations, even sticking around for the second part of the program. What was it you think that that she saw? That's a good question. I mean, it was, it was, it was a long time ago. I think I had probably been to see her once before. The, the internship was uh, really awful. It was a, it was a study about the impact of franchises on prices. So my entire internship was dialing up hair salons essentially and asking them the price of a haircut. Yeah. So there was that. And there was stuff with my host family too, where they just did the bare minimum. And I think we're just trying to collect some cash for, for being a host family. So I was, yeah, it's very isolated. So I've been in there to talk to her about these experiences before with the internship, with the host family, you know, stupidly had started a new relationship just before I left for Paris. Like probably on Skype or what have you, much more often than I should be, rather than interacting with actual people. You were kind of on your own, didn't have a good support system with the family that you're in. The person that you cared most about was far away, didn't have reason to kind of socialize more, and so there was a lot of yeah, a lot going on, a lot of pressure. You know, since since there was no structure to the internship, I have memories of just sort of you know like wandering around, like just taking the metro somewhere and like wandering around a neighborhood, like on the verge of being in tears or something like that, just to be out away from these places that were so lonely, essentially. You came back to the States for this trip to France. Mm -hmm. What happened next as far as diagnosis goes? You know, it's probably where a lot of people start is I just went to my primary care doctor. I'm feeling down. I have this sort of, not to be dramatic, like a breakdown type thing when I was abroad and uh, maybe need some help. Just some quick background. My dad is a clinical psychologist. So I think I was probably more open to discussing these things. So I mean, like I, I could go, but I knew I never taken antidepressants before, but I knew about them one way or another. And they, they didn't have like a stigma for me or anything like that. So just went to the primary care doctor and said, I'd like to try something. So mental health for you had been normalized a little bit because you'd seen that. Just knowing what my dad did and I know that. You know, my parents had had some struggles, or, well, not not to the extent that I have, but I knew they had had some. Um, and also, uh, maybe more unfortunately, I lived in a very small town, so people who saw my dad as a patient would just come up to me and be like, "Hey, I talked to your dad about this thing." The other day, ah, I don't want to know that. You know, uh, yeah. So it's a very small town, like difficult sometimes to even like go grocery shopping without someone being like, "Hey, Doctor Al," you know. So um, anyway, yeah. So yeah, it was it was normalized for me probably more than yeah. most people. But yeah, so I, I went to this doctor and I think 
what you're talking about before with some of the stuff with medication. Uh, I got prescribed. I don't remember what the first one was. Paxil or something. Probably one of one of the one of the big ones. I was not prepared. I don't think for the side effects that you get when you get on an, like an SSRI. Th- those have always hit me really hard in in recent memory. You know, like the longer I've tried things like this, I sort of can grit my teeth and be like, okay, this is going to last a few weeks or a month, and then maybe it'll 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 level out. Uh, but then it was my first time. So I like, you know, within the first week, <laughs> maybe, you know, of taking it, I was like, ah, I'm shaking all the time. My jaw's shaking and you know, I just feel agitated and we'll try something else. So then I switched some to probably Zoloft or something really quickly. Didn't like that one. And then I was, the, the guy I was seeing as a primary care was a very old school guy. So he, <laughs> for some reason, prescribed me with Remeron. I don't know if okay. you're familiar with Remeron. I'm, I'm not familiar Metra- with Metrazib. Trazepine or something like that. Right. Um, which is if for anyone who's ever taken that will tell you it's, it's, it's not a pleasant experience. It's very depersonalizing, let's say, where it's very difficult to interact with other people. And at that point is when I decided to go see, uh, like a therapist instead. One of the things you said was that you were surprised by the side effects. And I'm wondering if you have an opinion on, do mental health care professionals do a good enough job explaining what those side effects are? Oh, no. So the, the, they, they don't do a good job of explaining the side effects to you ahead of time. And I also think, especially earlier on in my experience, some doctors, especially maybe not so much therapists, but like psychiatrists and uh, primary care doctors and that kind of thing. Maybe it's too harsh to say like it doesn't, doesn't always seem like they have much sympathy for it. You're 20 years old and all of a sudden, sudden you start getting like, brain zaps i don't yeah. know if this is something you've ever had I've, I've not tell, tell me about a brain zap so it more happens with sort of like withdrawing from ssris right but it also can happen when you're titrating up or whatever onto onto a new medication where it's very difficult to to describe but it's almost just like shock in your mind uh you sort of yeah feel this energy or something disperse and it's it's a literal brain zap Yes. Yes. It's like a little lightning storm kind of thing. This is the first time you've experienced something like this. And, you know, I think it, it might be the case. I think I'm, I'm, I'm a lucky individual who gets, gets hit with like a lot of side effects, no matter yeah. what medication yeah. I'm taking. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't like to brag, but with some doctors, I feel like you go in and the response is sort of, oh, it'll go away soon. Like that's normal. I beg to differ. That's not normal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like the doctors I've had who's like sort of, attitude has gone a long way are people that understand that like this can be a really shitty process so yeah just having having someone be aware that they still affect you like in 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 your day-to-day life one of the things that was also difficult in that same way that, that for me to get used to with medication was that some things just don't go away some of the side effects you're on for a couple weeks or a month or something and then they they start to dissipate a little bit, but some things they just stick around. And I think one of the more challenging things for me was talking to a doctor and saying that and having them say, with these medications, you have to weigh the pros and cons, essentially. Yeah. Like, is it making you feel better enough in one way that you can deal with feeling bad in another way? Yeah, I won't focus on this too much, whether that's like sexual side effects or like nausea sometimes have been an issue that. These things, these things don't go away with the medication. Am I going to be in a constant state of panic attacks or have a panic attack every day or a couple of times every day versus once a week get my brain zapped? 
on balance, maybe that is a better yeah. state of being. Yeah, and I'm I'm, I'm jumping around a, a, a bit, but I think with some my brief experience with like the lamictal um, with the mood stabilizer was that part of it was kind of nice to not have like intense negative emotions but i think it also sort of started like dulling the positive emotions too right um that i think that was that was my experience i I know this is like a golden drug for a lot of people maybe it's just not right for me for some of the things you've experienced you know whether it's you know kind of sexual dysfunction or the brain zaps you, you don't find out about these things until they until they happen these side effects are obviously side effects Absent the medication, your brain would not just start zapping itself yeah. unless something was seriously wrong. Yeah, that that's clearly the medication. But the things like dreams coming in and out, or occasionally you feel like your motivation dampened, mm-hmm. or emotions or ability to interact with people dampened. Yeah. Um, it can be subtle enough that I don't know what your experience is, but for me, is that it's difficult for me to pinpoint whether it is the medication or yeah. not. Right, because I, I was trying to think about my experience on lamotrigine, and first I was like, oh, I remember. You know, I, dreams did kind of get more intense. And then actually I thought I remember not having dreams. And that, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Cause it's so, you know, I'm, I may be mixing in just things that are happening in my day to day life yeah. with, um, yeah, w- w- with, with actual side effects. Yeah. And I think that, that can be very frustrating yeah. uh, to not know, yeah. um, where something's coming from. So that's Max, a data scientist living with depression since he was diagnosed age 20. In some ways, Max is lucky. Having a parent working as a clinical psychologist, he didn't have any reservations about going to talk to someone about his breakdown or taking medication to help get him back on track. I hope in the future, going to seek help for your mental health will become normalized for everybody in the same way it was normalized for Max. Diagnosing and treating a broken leg is easy. You go get a scan, which clearly shows a break. Then you set the leg and you give it time to heal. But with mental illness, it's a little more grey. There isn't a scan or a blood test you can do to definitively diagnose depression. Even with a tool like the DSM-5, there's still something of a judgement call. With medications, it's unclear how a particular patient will react and whether there will be an acceptable balance between side effects and symptom relief. So even though Max started his treatment early, the road has definitely had its twists and turns. The truth of mental health treatment is that it's complex, requiring lots of things working in harmony. For me, medication, meditation, exercise, sleep, and diet all play their role. Even with the best care, sometimes the depression comes back. And on those days, for me, getting out of bed and doing a day's work is what I would call a one step at a time thing. If I wake up and I feel the grip of depression, the first thing I focus on, let's see if we can get out of bed. If I get out of bed, maybe let's see if we can go get breakfast. If I can take enough small steps, I can get through the day without withdrawing from the world. And it was in relaying that approach to those difficult days to Max that we started talking about work and whether you should be transparent at your workplace about what's happening on those days when you're in the grip of depression. I had a day just this last week where I'll wake up some days and I'll question, can I do it today? Like, can I get through Mm -hmm. through the day? And some days I'm able to tough it out. And I had a day this week, I think I kind of got through maybe the first step, have breakfast, and then just couldn't summon up the, the will and energy to go take a shower. I know for someone who doesn't live with this, sounds perhaps absurd. 
and it's it's not. Let me just let me yeah, just cut in. Yeah. As, uh, as back, back up, my friend here. Yeah. <laughs> that's not. That's not that's absurd. Not absurd. We've been there. Yeah. yeah, we've been there. Like I, you know, kept this cycle of like I can do this. I can do this. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna get there. And it got to nine o'clock, and my first meeting was nine thirty. And like I live half an hour away from work, and I wasn't dressed yet. And I was like, okay, this is not, this yeah. is not going to happen. But it still took me some time. I have a very supportive team to go say. Hey, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be able to make it today. You know, I'm having a you know bad mental illness day. You 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 feel you tell them that. So I, I didn't mean, I mean to interrupt you, but you you yeah, feel comfortable absolutely. enough to tell people. It literally, first I think first time I met this company, I talked about the fact that I deal with a mental illness, and so when I went in, in the kind of announcing announcement mail, you get to write your little blurb about yourself, sure, and I yeah, talked about the podcast yeah. and the and the bipolar. After the first experience in the interview. It very much became about, okay, I'm out now. If they hire me, that's great. I'm going to pres- presume that the company will support me in yeah. this. And if they don't, or that makes them uncomfortable, that's great. Because I don't want to work somewhere where I can't be myself. But that laid the groundwork for being able to say when I was having a, a bad day. And I think within the first month and a half, two months, I had one of those days and I just you know, sent a Slack message to the team, explained, here's what's going on today. I talked with you all before I started about the bipolar. Here it is coming up. Um, here's what I'm going to do. I think I was actually in the office that day and I said, hey, if you find me working in a corner somewhere or in a conference room on my own, it's just me managing myself. And they were very, very supportive. And then, uh, you know, back to this week, I sent a Slack message, you know, again saying, hey, listen, I'm having this day. Here's what's going on. Here's how I'm going to manage it, and hopefully I'll be back tomorrow. And for me, I tell the team this, being able to say, here's what's going on, and have them just say, cool, like we, you know, we've got you, do what, do what you need to do, that helps me manage it. Because I think if I was in an environment where I couldn't say that, or where if I said that people were obviously uncomfortable or like, you know, backed off me a little bit, that would make it worse. And I think then I would spiral much more than I did. And by, I think it was Thursday, I wasn't functioning. Friday, I went into the office and I wasn't perfect, but I was much better and much more able to get things done. So I'm very lucky to have found and created a work environment where I'm able to do that. That's really admirable. I think I think I have ever felt like I was in a position like that, even if it would have been true. Yeah, that's that's uh, that sounds like the like the gold standard, like the the, pro- the the promised land of dealing of dealing with mental illness at work that's uh yeah one of the, one of the hardest things is being at work and feeling like you can't be honest about what's going on yeah. in your head in your life and you're right that it does it makes things worse to not be honest and open about that but I, i'm i'm at the point now where most of the people i work with at least i'm people i'm close with at work in my current role I have at least alluded to having these troubles at certain times. I try to be more open and say I've struggled. I've had lots of bad experiences in the past with breakdowns and stuff. One of which we've already discussed. I don't think I've ever, except with a, with a few people, gotten to the point where I could say like, "This is what is actually happening in my head today." Yeah. Yeah. It's always I, I always try to keep it at a distance. Yeah. Where people know and maybe can make inferences or something like that. If I decide to take a day for myself, yeah. all of a sudden they might know. I don't know. 
and this is not to not to say that especially in my current role where we work at this company where we're all about helping people's health, mental well-being work. that I would get a negative reaction but I think it's easy to convince yourself that you will until you until you're open about it which which is why I said admirable for you because it's great not only that the company you work for is open to to knowing this kind of stuff but that you feel like you you took the step of yeah. of, of telling them exactly like from the day to day, yeah, this can happen. But uh, yeah, whereas for me, I'm, I'm just, I just haven't gotten to that point. Listen, it's not easy to do that. It's not like I was kind of blasé and, oh, I'm going to yeah. do this. The act of, you know, that first time writing that Slack message was difficult. And I had the moment of, will I, won't I, should I, shouldn't I? Mm-hmm. I'm new. Are they going to think that I'm weak, et cetera, et cetera, right? All the things that, all yeah. the stigma stuff that, that yeah. comes up, but it is very contextual to the to the workplace. I think there are places where being physically sick is not okay. Right, right. It's like yeah. Oh, you know, you're off with a cold. Like, well, that's it, isn't it? Right? You, you and you and I are having this conversation about the difficulties, but we're we're lucky, right? Yeah. We we we're kind of well off, maybe tech workers. Yeah, absolutely. Where these yeah these companies, yeah, they, they can be relaxed, yeah. but like. And it's still hard for us. So I, I can't imagine what it's like to have like a role where you're describing where like there's not even sympathy if you have the flu or something for to, to be able to take time from work to to be someone in that position who struggles with this and, and is not even possibly be able to mention that you struggle with mental issues. Right. Yeah, because it must being, be awful because being sick for a day or a couple of days potentially is enough to get you fired or get you yeah. moved out of the job because there are tons of other people who, you know, would do that and, you know, and won't be, or haven't been, been sick. Um, so yeah, we are, and I'm very aware doing this podcast that the pool of people I'm drawing from are a lot of people in the tech community, for example, who, as you say, you know, have very good benefits, have the ability to get psychiatric support or psychological support who have the ability yeah. to have insurance where they can get, Medication. In my current role, the insurance we have p- pays fully for mental health benefits. That's huge, but yeah. it's so rare. Yeah. So rare that we're not doing it anymore next year. We'll get, <laughs> we'll get, we'll get the copays back. This summer after the baby was born, I was, I was seeing my therapist like twice a week ne- and never paying for it. That, I mean, other than the premiums, the hidden payment. Uh, I think my, my therapist actually told me at one point the insurance company called her not to say that they weren't going to cover me anymore. But to ask, do they really need to cover all? Is it really necessary? Is he really having that hard of hard of a time? And she said yes. So and they backed off. But and and so so yeah. I mean, this is this is like as good as it gets here. I think, uh, and it still can be not so good. I, I want to put on record that actually makes me angry. And I know that whatever you know, if you're dealing with diabetes or any other persistent condition, there is that constant battle with your insurance company, right? who want to minimize their, you know, costs so they can ma- maximize their profit. And part of that is making sure you're getting basically the base level, minimum level of care they can get away with. Correct. And yeah. that's bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's extremely frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> Worst part I mean, the copay I can handle. Uh, but the, the person I've been seeing who I, I love and has been super helpful, which can be very difficult. I don't know what your experience with therapists. It's very hit or miss. Uh, I found someone I feel really comfortable with who's been really helpful, but she's no longer in network next year because we're changing plans. 
So I had it was it was, it was actually kind of emotional. I had my last session with her uh, last last week. Yeah, where it was like, I wish I could tell you that like we've hit a natural stopping point where I, where I, like we've done this work and now I can manage certain things that are going on in my life. But this is not the case. And you can tell that like I would like to keep talking to her. Yeah. I can tell that she would like to keep talking to right. me because she knows I'm still struggling with this stuff. But I also can't afford to pay $100 or $125, whatever, for per week for a session. I just can't. Yeah. So for anyone out of there who's, who's never been to therapy, there's usually – it can take a month, six weeks or something where it's literally just getting a therapist up to speed on your history. And every time you start over, you have to go through this again. And they may reevaluate you, as you pointed out earlier, and say like, well, I, you know, that person said OCD, but right. I'm thinking, yeah. you know, it's anxiety and, mm-hmm. you know, bipolar. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's very frustrating. Any, anything with insurance, often wonder, and we don't have to dwell on this, but I often wonder what it's like for someone out there who, especially like in the, the type of career that we have or something like that, who doesn't have health problems. I imagine, like, what, what must it be like to be healthy and not have to cope with yeah. this stuff? Um, and deal with being on the phone with insurance yeah. and being like, doctor wants to try this new medication. I know it's expensive. However, nothing else works for me. Can I please, please, please try them, please? You know, and we'll, we'll look at our books and see how much it costs. Listen, I know I'm lucky to work in a place where I can be open about my mental illness and to talk about symptoms when they come up. If you're living with a mental illness, know that that environment doesn't happen by accident. There are two constituents who need to step up. First, employers need to offer benefits, paid sick leave, mental health support groups and other resources. But almost more important, it takes each of us with a mental illness to stand up and say, hey, this is me, here's what's going on, and I'm not ashamed. Mental illnesses are persistent and treating them is complex, requiring coordinating multiple moving parts, including therapy, drugs, and changing habits like sleep or eating. Max's story about his insurance calling up his therapist isn't surprising. An insurer doesn't see a man struggling with depression who's trying to learn how to be a parent for the first time. They see a billing code come in, and it's coming in more often than I think it should. Likewise, when an employer chooses a different network, they may know how many providers are in that network, but they aren't able to think about whether the psychiatrist you depend on is going to be in-network or out-of-network. Insurance companies and benefit packages aren't the only place care gets complicated. There are regulations around drugs that also come into play. I had a guest on the show who manages ADHD, and I guess ADHD meds have become popular on the black market, I think particularly with students because it helps Adderall, with, yeah, Adderall yeah. and stuff like that. And so he is heavily limited to how much he can get. In, in the times where I'm dealing with the worst anxiety, I will, I have like a stash of clonopin on hand, just especially for sleeping uh, when the anxiety is really bad and I'm just not, I need the sleep. I can't get classified as a schedule one drug, schedule one narcotic. So you can't even get it get an electronic prescription submission to the pharmacy you have to get something written 
and then go and hand it in and be like, please give me my narcotics. Yeah. Uh, you get one month at a time yeah. and then you have to go, you can't have any refills. You go back to your doctor and you have to do the same thing, pay prescription all over again. I understand where, where they're coming from with that. It's, uh, you know, I don't. And here's why, because okay. you are penalizing the majority for the actions of the minority. I've got to believe that the number of people who need that drug to function well vastly outweighs the number of people who abuse it. I have to imagine, because I do not know what is going on with people who take clonopin recreationally. Right. Because all it does is make me tired. <laughs> like, it's essentially, I mean, like, it, it, it calms me down. I go to sleep. You know, you know I, I don't know who's out there, you know, cru- like at a party crushing up clonopin on a mirror and then just taking a nap in the corner or something like that. Like, I, I, please, please, please write to James and tell him how you use clonopin recreationally. I'm, I'm putting that invitation out there. Don't do that. Uh, that's getting cut. That's getting cut. Yeah. Um, but, um, Maybe, and, and, I don't know. Like, I would yeah. genuinely would be, would be but curious I, to hear. I think, I think it, it even, it scares me. It's like the, the other effect that difficulty of getting that prescription has on me where it's like, oh, if they're not going to let me have this without all these like safeguards, yeah. then like, should I be on it? Like, am I, am I going to get addicted? Yeah. You know? You know, I, th- I think the, the the rule of thumb is like you should never take it for more than six months at a time. But six months is quite a long time. Yeah. Logically, uh, I know that it's just a tool that I need to help me manage things for for a temporary amount of time. Yeah, these these safeguards and this uh, classification by the let's say uh, FDA yeah. <clears throat> uh, classifies it as 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 a narcotic. It, it just it feels powerful, like you're, you're putting something in your body, which is dangerous, yeah. even though it's helpful. Sounds like you've been through a few therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists along the way. Yeah. Just a kind of curiosity data question. How many do you think you've been through in, in your lifetime? Um, let's see. Let me, let me do a quick tally. Eight. Let's say eight, eight therapists okay. total. Over roughly what period of time? Since I was 20, so okay. the, the past decade or so. Past decade. Oh, so one every other every other year. Yeah, some some for longer than yeah. others. I'm also very bad at. I was not so much anymore, but I used to be very bad at like, even if it wasn't a good fit, I would not break it off because because I didn't want to deal with that. What I talked yeah. about earlier, that sort of like onboarding period. Yeah. So I saw this guy in Chicago for two years. He was just awful. He may have been right for for some people. He was not right for me. He did not have good advice. Yeah. He was kind of creepy when it came to like discussing like sexual side effects of medication and stuff like that. It was, it was not good, but I stayed, I stayed talking yeah. to him for like two years. Yeah. Um, other people, it's been more like, you know, a month or two. And then yeah. I say, like, this is, this is not working yeah. out. Uh, somebody recently approached me and their um, sort of general doctor had said, I think you might be suffering with anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I suggest that you go find someone to talk to about it. She asked me, where do I start? How do I pick a therapist or a psychologist? What would be your advice or, or perspective on, on that? <laughs> I wish I had a good advice for this. Um, it is my, my advice, and this is not helpful for picking someone initially. My advice is to trust your gut about whether someone is a good fit for you or not. Maybe I'm saying that coming from a position of experience. I'm a veteran of blowing through therapists at this point. If you've never been to therapy before, there's can, there can be this impression, I feel like. They're the professional. They know what they're doing. doesn't sound right to me, but you know, I should stay with them because they, they know. But that's not, that's not always true. 
I went into therapy without knowing that they had a specialty. The last time I was living in Dallas, I saw someone who who was a uh, like a, I think like, like a pornography specialist. Okay, it's like pornography addiction. Yeah. Every time I went, I'd be like, "Oh, I'm having because I still it's point I'm having trouble concentrating at work. Like I'm still I don't want to have another breakdown like I did in my last job." And they're like, "That's interesting. How often a day do you look at porn?" I'm like, "This does not seem like the right line of questioning. I don't think." Even therapists are human, you know, like they, they come in with a specific bias. The best ones I think can overcome that bias. Yeah. Some are not the best ones. So if someone is just, if you go in, even if they're a professional and someone is just talking to you about something which is not relevant, uh, at least, at least try advocating for yourself yeah. first. And if they don't change their tact or try to work with you instead of just working at you, which is not a phrase, but instead of just doing that, then leave. And try to find some. It's it's such a hassle. Yeah. Every time, every time I find someone who I like is a therapist, I just cling on to them as much as I can because, like, it, it is it's such a pain. Yeah. I think you know, I, I, like I said, I've seen eight people. I've had three, I think, who were really good. I've had probably two more who were who were okay, and then uh, three more who were just terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, for me, anyway, maybe, maybe they're not terrible. It sounds a lot. A lot of parallels with medication where you try something, it has its side effects, it works for you, it doesn't work for you, and you go on and try something else. And I think I'm hearing the same, the same story with therapists, which is like one therapist might work really well for, for me, but it might not yeah. work for you. And so it's very much a choice about you know, comfort, connection, etc. Yeah. And I, I think also, I don't want to overstate this. Obviously, pay attention to people's qualifications. They should be certified in some way to be a therapist. Good tip. Um, but some of the best people I've seen were not where you would traditionally seek out a therapist, mm-hmm. I think. When I was in college, after I came back from Paris, I went to the clinic that was essentially like a training ground for PhD mm-hmm. clinicians. I was a student. It cost, it had like a sliding scale. It cost like five bucks a session or something like that. And she's one of the most helpful people I've ever talked to. She had not gotten her degree yet. She was still training. Um, But she was, and like under the supervision of someone, the camera was difficult to overcome for the supervision, but, um, but she, she's one of the best people I've ever had. And and the person I I saw most recently was through doctor on demand, which if you don't know, is like a, like teledoc, that kind of thing where you, you basically just like Skype with someone. And and she's one of the best people I've ever had. And I, my intuition would not be that like having a conversation with someone over technology would be as effective as talking to someone in person. But for me, it was. Yeah. So I think be open. And by the way, with tele mental health mm. supports, yeah, um, or tele psychiatrist, I guess that's not covered by all insurance plans. No. So check with your insurance plan if they. But I will say yeah. that if you don't have insurance, or you don't have good insurance. If you have insurance that gives you a limited number of benefits, like you only get something absurd like 10 visits a year or something like that, which is not commensurate with your actual problem, even if insurance doesn't cover telemedicine, it can still end up being cheaper on a per session basis than if you paid out of pocket for an in-person therapist. There's also something odd around that. I wanted to have a session, tele-session with my psychiatrist, and I was out of state, and she couldn't give me a session because... I guess maybe she wasn't certified in the state. That's, that that's I was what in. it is. Yeah. 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 There's all these little subtleties and nuances to, to getting this care. It's complex. Yeah. It's not easy. Yeah. And the fact that 
you don't always get it right the first time makes it that much less easy. But it's so worth it when you find someone. That that is what I would say is that like you are allowed to feel frustrated with the process, but there are people out there who can really help you. And they've they've helped me at really terrible times in my life and turned things around for me in in ways when when you're in the middle of it, you just don't think is possible. When you first seek treatment, you don't know what to expect. If you go to see a psychiatrist who seems a bit stern and cold, you might assume that's normal for a psychiatrist and keep seeing them, without knowing there are psychiatrists out there who are warm and friendly. I like Max's advice for picking a therapist. Trust your gut. If you go see someone and you don't feel comfortable talking to them, maybe there's someone out there who's a better fit for you. One of the resources that are starting to appear at companies are employee resource groups. They're groups of people within a company that advocate for employees who share a particular identity. For example, there are lots of companies who have a women's employee resource group. Max has had a lot of experience managing his depression and anxiety, and he's getting more comfortable talking about it. And now, because he's more comfortable talking about it, he's starting a mental health employee resource group at Limeade. We want to talk about uh, your work a little bit more. I think I'm right in saying when we spoke on the phone before we got the session together, you mentioned you were considering setting up an um, employee resource group. I'd love to hear more about what you're doing with that, what's important about that to you to get that set up. It's miserable, I think, to in previous jobs to go to work at a place where you don't feel like there is that openness of culture. Um, the the place after this big like moving with my in-laws period where I, where I worked was American Airlines and for my first couple of months there. I still was having terrible anxiety, but I didn't know anybody. And it was kind of like a more traditional corporate environment. So I didn't feel like I could tell anybody. I eventually worked through it on my own and got, and got better about it. It's always just been, been miserable to be feeling this way and to have to pretend or have to pretend, but like to tell yourself you need to pretend to that these things, no one will understand it. People will not accept that it's a big deal, that it should affect your work. That's so much of a burden to place on yourself on top of already going to work with a mental illness. We have a very, obviously, a very active people, HR department at, at Limeade, since that's kind of what we do. And there was just a discussion about, like, what, what other groups would you like to see? And, you know, this is what I am, like, personally passionate about. Yeah. Like, maybe, like, maybe it's self-serving since it's something I struggle with, right. you know? That's okay, but um, I'm not, I think. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not like Gregory Peck being like chairman of the American Lung Association, even though he never had lung cancer. Yeah. Um, but I, I, but it's real to me, right? And I know that I have talked about in this conversation that I have had advantages of like normalizing this stuff that a lot of people probably still don't have. My parents obviously understand. I have a brother who I can talk to about this stuff. My, my wife is very understanding of this stuff. She's, incredible to have put up with as much as she she has but a lot of people don't have that and all i hope to accomplish with like an employee group and obviously the goal is not to provide care to people but just to have a space where people can talk about 
some of the things they're going through openly if they want to, or to go to a place and have someone else talk about what they're going through to just know that they're not as cliche as it sounds, that they're not alone in the struggles that they're having. Cause that can be huge. Yeah. For me, it has been, if I have gone up to a coworker scared of what I'm going to tell them and say like, Oh, I had this anxiety and OCD and depression that I've dealt with in the past, which has really messed with my life. And they say, yeah, me too. That can be such a huge relief. And, but, but it's always, I feel like if, without a formal setting like that mm-hmm. or, or like a knowledge of like yeah. that, that's appropriate in a certain work yeah. environment, it can be a challenge every time you open yeah. up to someone. So the, the idea with the group would just be to foster an environment where you knew that it was okay to talk about your struggles or like for it to be okay that people knew you were struggling, even if you didn't talk about it. What do you think the structure of that, that group will be? How do you think it will work? Yeah, I should come up with a better idea for that before I keep shopping it around. Um, my, like, obviously, I am at a point where I feel relatively comfortable discussing this stuff. To just have like an initial session where I was like, "Here's what I'm dealing with. Here, here are my struggles. Like, maybe here are some things that help me through it." And just open up about my own story. Hope that other people continue to open about their up about their story. The aim, I think, would hopefully be to have like speakers in eventually or something like that whether it's just people opening up about their personal experience or having professionals or what's the right word to describe this podcast mental health enthusiasts i don't <laughs> i say mental health advocate that's much better that sounds much less flippant um me- mental health advocates to come in and and talk mental talk. health sometimes enthusiastic sometimes not <laughs> yeah sometimes sometimes too enthusiastic Sorry, I should interject. That is also a goal. If we ever do yeah. this is to, I'm, I'm speaking only of people who struggle with these things, but yeah. a goal obviously would also be to educate people who do yeah. not struggle with it. Yeah. I think, I don't know. Cause I'm, I'm in this most days, yeah. you know, to, to some extent or another, but I, I, I can't imagine it must be difficult for someone to realize what it's actually like. There's enough, I mean, lack of information, but also misinformation. I'm gra- gradually getting more and more frustrated hearing people talk about like OCD, which like just like, oh, I, I need my desk to be clean. I'm so OCD. Like, yeah. No, you're no, no, you're, you're not. not. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that, I, that for, I'll put on that for what it's worth. That also bugs me. It's hard because I don't want to take away from people's experiences or make somebody feel like if they say I have anxiety that. They don't, you know what I mean? I do, yeah. Yeah, but it's, you know, I, I think what I want for people is if you think you have OCD, if you think you have anxiety, if you think you experience de- depression, go talk to somebody about it mm. and find out because that will put you on the path to you know, more resources, better ways to, um, yes. to manage that. So I think it shows up for me as this kind of irritation at like, I don't know whether you do or you don't. Don't kind of denigrate the experience of people who have. Yeah. But I think the more positive way of, of directing that is go find out. And if that thing is real for you, then then you'll be able to get help. I think I only have one last question that I want to ask. If you could go back in time and be in Paris with Max, who is walking around some neighborhood to be on your own. Yeah. What would you want to tell that, Max? I don't know. It sounds like a weird thing to say, but it was so new to me at the time and so weird. I would almost tell myself in the beginning, not when things got really bad, when I started feeling those anxieties and stuff, that 
again, it sounds crazy that this is a part of me. Like one of the things that I have worked towards up till now is coming to terms with the fact that like, to some extent, it's always going to be in there. This isn't something again with the antibiotics where you take it and it's gone. You can treat it. You can do things to make yourself more healthy. At least in my experience, there's still going to be bad days. And I think as, as weird as it sounds, I, I would tell my younger self that like, don't panic more than you should because you're in for a long ride, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, like, like, like you're going to have struggles. Right. But weirdly, I've also come to terms as I've gotten older with the fact that my brain working this way, in addition to all the shitty things it does to me and all the trouble it causes me, it also gives me like a unique outlook. And like a unique perspective. I feel like it's made me more empathetic. I feel like you could, you could call my humor a defense mechanism, but I think it's, you know, I can laugh about it and I can talk about it to people in a way that's not off putting and stuff like that most of the time. There's almost a silver lining almost. I mean, like it sucks (laughs) to to, to deal with the stuff. Again, I, I wonder what it's like to be someone out there who doesn't have these problems. Who gets up every morning and every day is a joy and stuff (laughs) like that. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, or at least like this is a normal amount of sadness yeah. or fear. Yeah. Um, but that's that's just not that's not how it is for me. And I I I have, as I've gotten older, come to accept that yeah. that's bad. Yeah. But it's also it can be good sometimes. Yeah. Um yeah. And I think I, I don't know if that would be helpful to twenty year old Max wandering yeah. around the streets of Paris, but I would try to communicate that like like don't panic. You're you're having a rough time. I'm sorry to say you're going to have rough times moving forward. Um, this is part but, of you. But this is, this, this is part of who yeah. you are. And you'll, you'll get the help that you need. Yeah. Um, eventually, you'll, stop, you'll recognize your symptoms to the point where you can do your best to stop things from escalating before they get to an unmanageable point. Yeah. Um, and you'll be a better friend to people, I think. Even people who are just having a bad day or something like that. And don't feel like they can express this negative emotion or something like that. You can be there and be in empathetic or sympathetic. I agree with you that there are silver linings, I think in, in these experiences as we, as we come to wrap up here, what else feels important to say? I've talked a lot about, I think how I'm still kind of uncomfortable about like being very specific about the things I'm going through to, to a lot of people. Even though I do have that, there's something holding me back. I'm trying to get better at it. I would say as much as possible, be open because 90% of the time, people will be under, more understanding than you think. And to a much, probably not, not as large a percentage of time, but people go through this stuff. Even if it's not, like for me, depression and anxiety have been chronic things since I was in, in college, um, probably earlier. Some people have depressive episodes once. And it can be severe. So I think if you are someone who's struggling regularly, that people are probably more open to these discussions than you think they are. They'll be more understanding. They've been through some of the same stuff more often than you think they would have. So even though I have talked about it and I'm still saying that part of me is still nervous about bringing up specifics of my condition to people, I really could not think of almost, and nothing comes to mind. I, I hesitate to say there aren't any, but like, Think of any experiences where I shared something about myself, about mental illness, where I had a bad reaction, where it wasn't a good conversation that came afterwards, or at least like a, oh, that's okay. You know, even if it wasn't a conversation, just like, hey, I'm, I struggle with this stuff. It's been difficult lately. 
like, cool. If it's a good friend or someone or acquaintance and like, okay, cool. We'll just hang out. You're, you're fine. You know, it's not as scary as it seems. I'm still working on that. I think that's a, a great place to leave it, Max. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for doing this. This is, I'm, I'm so happy to see something like this out there and I'm glad to be a part of it. Thank you. So that's Max's journey that started wandering around the streets of Paris in tears and has reached the point where he's now creating a group to support other people who struggle with their mental health at Limeade. He's come a long way. If there's something that came clear from me listening back to this episode, it's that we have to take control of our care and stand up for ourselves. There are lots of things about living with a mental illness that aren't easy. Dealing with your symptoms, getting your first diagnosis, dealing with medication side effects or switching medications, deciding on a therapist, deciding to switch therapists, deciphering what benefits are covered by your insurance plan and arguing about medications with insurance companies. All these things can put a bump in the road. But every time you go over one of those bumps, it gets a little bit easier. You get a little better educated. You get a little more courageous. And eventually, you're just living your life. Remember, Max and I are just two people sharing our personal experiences living and working with a mental illness. If you have any concerns about your mental health, there are some numbers you can call at the end of the episode. If you've heard something that inspires you to change something about your treatment, please consult with your care provider before you do. If you like what you've heard in today's episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to hear about new episodes as they're released, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash silent superheroes or sign up for our newsletter at www.silentsuperheroes.com. Take your mental health seriously. If you need to speak to someone, you can call 1-800-273-8255 or text crisistextline.org at 741-741. Both provide 24-7 confidential counseling to people in the United States. Worldwide, visit iasp.info slash resources slash crisis underscore centers slash To help others find the Silent Superheroes podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service.